The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani, and today we're going to discuss the resounding impact of the Reddit short squeeze, dive into the world of online sports betting following Super Bowl 55, and get more on the crazy crypto ride with Bitcoin above $43,000. Here's my conversation with Dave Nodick, Director of Research at ETF Trends, Jeff Kilberg, founder and CEO of KKM Financial, and Will Hershey, the co-founder and the CEO of Roundhill Investments, who runs that sports ETF. Dave, I want to start with you. You know, last week we were all over this discussion about Reddit, uh, the Reddit crowd, GameStop, AMC, what's going on with Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, down again today, is this story all over? Uh, and is there any impact on trading in the ETF world? I think there is going to be trading in the ETF world. And I think trading in general, I think the thing that we've learned here is not that somehow we have this new class of retail investors that's empowered by social media. I think that's been there. I think what we're recognizing is this class of players is going to add volatility to the market. I think it's a bit of a fool's game to try to chase the next thing that they might glom onto, whether it's AMC or Bed Bath & Beyond or you know whatever it might be. The important thing is to recognize that in single names like this, there is this opportunity to get sort of run over if you're not careful from this new player, this retail social media-driven investor. So for me, it's not directional. It's not up or down. It's just more volatility. Yeah, Jeff, you're an old market hand. Weigh, weigh in on this. I mean, uh, Dave likes to warn about increasing volatility due to non-fundamental trading. I'm reading from Dave's comment to me uh, this morning. And, we, you know, the VIX is down here. But does that mean that, you know, is, is there suddenly a greater chance of these black swan, four sigma events kind of popping up on us out of nowhere like this? Well, Bob, I'm a big believer that volatility, as we both know, and Dave knows, volatility makes markets go up and down. So the volatility component, I think, is, is welcome and actually embraced. When you see this volatility, it attracts more and more, not just hedge fund managers, but more institutions to really step into the game. And that volatility produces volume. That type of volume produces liquidity. So I think it's a win-win situation. But there is a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction when you see the volatility. Yeah. Okay, let me move on. Will, it's the day after Super Bowl. You're the guy who's the expert on this. You run the, the uh, Roundhill Sports Gaming ETF. B-E-T-Z uh, is the symbol there. Uh, tell us how much betting was done on the Super Bowl and how does it compare to big sporting events uh, in the past? Was there a lot of money on this one? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, for those following the industry, it should come as no surprise. But the Super Bowl is the event of the year for the betting industry. Um, this year, when the numbers roll in, we expect uh, the Super Bowl to set a new record in terms of handle on a single event uh, with more than $500 million in regulated wagers. That's up from $300 million last year, and that's being driven in part by kind of the shift that we're seeing throughout the broader economy from brick-and-mortar uh, to, to mobile and online. That, the, the sports betting industry, that is happening as well, and it's happening fast. And, and on top of that, we've seen new states that have come online in terms of legalizing sports betting. So recently we've had Michigan, Virginia, and Illinois launch. It's also worth highlighting that Several billions more on top of that $500 million figure are coming in via black, uh, black markets and unregulated sports books, 
we expect as kind of the U.S. market matures and more states come online, that's going to shift and it's going to mean revenues for these sportsbook operators. But maybe more importantly, it's going to mean tax dollars for state legislatures. Yeah. I, I would note you're still not, it, I mean, it's, you're legal in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Nevada, Michigan, Virginia, Tennessee, but the, you know, the biggest four states in the United States, uh, New York, California, Florida, Texas, still not legal. What, any, is that, any of the big four going to change? No, you got it, Bob. I mean, remember, sports betting only became legal at the federal level in the U.S. in 2018 with the repeal of PASPA. As you mentioned, it's now a state-by-state -state issue. 21 states have some form of legalized sports betting uh, currently. We expect 10 to maybe even 12 more uh, come online this year, including two of those big four you mentioned, Texas and New York. In New York right now, you have to go all the way upstate and place a, a sports bet in person at one of the tribal casinos. The new legislation being introduced by Cuomo uh, would allow for mobile mobile betting. And I think I think really what's going on here, um, kind of similar to what we're seeing in the cannabis industry, is, look, there are material budget deficits at the state level, even at the country level uh, outside of the U.S. How do you look to kind of bridge the gap uh, in the wake of coronavirus? I think sports betting becomes kind of low-hanging fruit. Uh, for these state's legislators to bring in additional tax revenue. So I think we're really kind of um, just getting started. When we look at the total opportunity here, we're talking about, for the U.S. market only, in upwards of 20 to $30 billion in terms of total addressable market for sports betting. So we really are, right. uh, pardon the pun, in the early innings here. Yeah. So, and where's the money? Is, is, is the real money in the live betting, like, we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, bet that somebody's going to make a touchdown in the next 10 minutes on a, on a football game? Or is it in the online casino business, just, just playing blackjack online? Where, where's, where, where do you think the bulk of the money is going to be? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. We've seen this evolution from daily fantasy sports to now sports betting. I think you're hitting it on the head. Online casino is really going to be the big moneymaker for these players with sports books kind of being the kind of customer acquisitions and, and kind of the top of funnel for these players. When you think about running a, a game of blackjack, it's much higher margin. It's much more predictable revenues. I mean, look at the game last night. Who could have seen, who could have seen that coming, right? You have to manage for that as a sports book. You mentioned live betting as well. I mean, technology is going to advance to the point where we're not even talking about the next 10 minutes. We're talking about whether the next pitch is a curve or a fastball. I think that's going to unlock real monetization opportunities when the technology gets to the point that we can see that rolled out in mass. So, so Dave, we're all gonna we're all gonna we're all gonna be you know participating in, in online gambling operations. We're all gonna be uh, you know buying pot shares, and we're all gonna be uh, investing in Bitcoin, and that's how we're gonna balance all the state budgets. Is that is that what's gonna happen here? I mean, he's painting a pretty rosy picture. I, I think that there is actually a fair amount of truth to that. I mean, certainly legalization of cannabis, a, a big part of that has been this push for tax revenue at the state level and at the local level. And I think we're going to see the same thing, frankly, in anything that we have previously regulated out as a quote unquote sin activity like gambling. Um, I think this is really inevitable. Certainly, you know, in this COVID environment where we're all still fairly trapped it makes a ton of sense for us to move some of these activities that historically have been sort of vacation activities to the home. I mean, I live in Massachusetts. We have a handful of casinos that have opened up here, but I think most of those folks would really just rather be able to do that at home as opposed to, say, driving to Springfield or to a, a reservation in order to be able to play a hand of blackjack. So I think it's a bit inevitable, and I think the tax story is real. Is it real? 
Jeff? I mean, are we? I mean, I'm, I'm not asking a policy question. I know you're in the trading business, but let me just ask you in terms of these ETFs. I've watched this ETF of his, BETZ, just gather a tremendous amount of assets. It was one of the big thematic hits of, of the year, uh, sports gaming. Um, you are, uh, your firm does a lot of trading around the ETF space itself. Uh, how do you feel about sports gaming uh, as, a, as a thematic idea? And, and just give us some thoughts on 2021 and what will be hot thematic themes, uh, ideas. Well, Bob, no, it's a great question. In 2021, I get excited about themes. And let's just rewind to 2008, 2009, post-crisis. If you were just long the S&P 500 utilizing SPY, things were fine. But what changed in 2020? Obviously, we had a pandemic. So that pandemic has made a lot of not just financial advisors, not just investors, but the whole globe really rethink their exposure in these themes, specific gambling, betting, if it's pot, whatever the actual theme is. People are trying to be more thoughtful, not just on their themes, but also their sector exposure. So we run a lot of ETF model portfolios actually powered by NASDAQ, Dorsey, right? And we're always looking for sector tilting. We're always trying to drill down and produce alpha somewhere by being different. And I think that's the thematic component. So you're seeing great ETFs like BETZ. There's a lot of different ETFs coming to market that are going to allow people to really slice an approach. And, you know, the same way you're seeing uh, some of the uh, active investors uh, in the GameStops as well as the AMC, they're looking for ideas. They're looking for conviction. This may be wrong, Bob, on the actual theme for that quarter or for that year, but nonetheless, they want to have the ability to have conviction. And that's what gets so excited about the ETF space. And that's why I think it continues to see growth in 2021, specifically in thematic ETFs. I really like thematic ETF concepts because it's easy for the investing public to understand. It's easy to understand, I want to own solar. 100%. I want to own, 100%. you know, environmental social governance i want to you know order own whatever people think thematically i don't have to when i say thematic i don't even have to explain to people i, I mean people like to think no. in categories uh it's a it's a more specific way of looking at it than the old gic structure uh or or the s p uh subsectors but it's thematic and and it makes a lot of sense it's one of the great things about the etf business that they can pick up on thematics very quickly and turn them into an etf how many times uh, have we seen that speaking of uh thematics uh jeff uh, it's time to discuss the Bitcoin ETF, the ageless, endless Bitcoin ETF story. Uh, you're with uh, you're a partner in Valkyrie. Not to be cynical about it, but hey, I mean, how many years have have Dave and I sitting here been debating the Bitcoin ETF? We're we're going into retirement debating the Bitcoin ETF at this point. So you've got one. You're with Valkyrie. Uh, do one thing here. Just break this down. Number one, uh, why would this be a good year for? Bitcoin finally to have an ETF. Is there something about the SEC now under this administration that will make them more amenable where they weren't in the past? Is there something about the quality or state of Bitcoin that has changed that would make the SEC more amenable? And Jeff, you know very clearly the SEC has cited many specific instances where why they don't want it, including custody issues, including the ability to control prices because a lot of it's set overseas and what they consider questionable markets. So give us an overview here. Uh, what, what, what suddenly do you think has changed that would cause the SEC to approve a Bitcoin ETF? Well, Bob, a similar approach to the way I strategically asked my wife to marry me. You know, around the 15th or 20th <laughs> time I asked, she finally said yes. But all kidding aside, 
I think the Bitcoin ETF and why I'm optimistic for 2021, it just gets exciting because here we are. I know we're celebrating the S&P 500 today, making a new all-time high above 3,900, but we're also celebrating Bitcoin as it nearly kissed 45,000. So as we see all this confluence of exciting data, I think we go back to why did the SEC say no for all these years? And yes, we did file Valkyrie Funds. It's a team of seasoned industry veterans led by our CEO, Leah Wall. But we have the ability and the confidence that we're seeing a change of guard at the SEC with Mr. Clayton leaving. But nonetheless, I think the maturity of the product, that maturity of Bitcoin is actually being confirmed today with Ethereum futures being traded the CME group. So an additional crypto created in the futures market. But I go back to why is it going to happen in 2021, Bob? I think it's the fact that the SEC has been watching, patiently watching, and they're really trying to make sure that trading and markets, that's the division of the SEC that has to get comfortable before any review of any filing, no matter how many filings of ETFs are out there. But once trading markets get more comfortable with the actual concept of just Bitcoin and crypto in general, I think that makes sense. And the active and passive investors, they're trying to find a solution, a remedy to own Bitcoin. Try not to forget their passcodes and their digital walls. They're trying to find a more secure way of holding those cryptocurrencies. You take that and add on the fact that we're seeing a lot of companies like Tesla in the news today owning Bitcoin or go back to last fall when we saw PayPal, PayPal announce the fact that they're going to let 350 million of their users transact in Bitcoin or crypto. I think this is all coming together here in 2021. And more importantly, why we think we're different at Valkyrie, why we think we have confidence in our ETF. Of course, price is going to be a big piece of it, Bob. But also it's the expertise in trading markets, trading futures. And that should be assistive in adjusting the historical slippage or the historical premium to NAV and some of the other products. And the SEC is watching that component, that premium to now. And I think if they can offer a solution via an ETF, regulate it, and it can trade more accurately to the actual spot price of Bitcoin, that's the win-win solution for all active and passive investors, even the hodlers. Jeff, you are a great salesman for your Bitcoin ETF, <laughs> I have to say. But, but Dave, seriously, maturity? Is that really is that really a reason the SEC is going to approve a Bitcoin ETF? And now well, that Elon it, Musk is endorsing it, we all know about that wonderful relationship he has with the SEC. I mean, if that doesn't get him over the gold line, I don't know what will for a crying look, out loud. Go ahead, you know, Dave. I think, enlighten you us. Know, we definitely maturity definitely does matter, and that is effectively what the SEC has said in rejecting or asking filings to be pulled that these markets are not yet ready to be the target of ETF investors. Now, I think that that is changing. I think Gensler coming at the SEC between him and Purse, they really understand crypto, and that's got to be a good sign. I'm maybe not quite as uh, Pollyanna about it. I think maybe we're still looking at 22, but I do think it's inevitable, and I think we're starting to make that progress towards a sort of fully liquid, fully exchange-traded crypto vehicle of some sort, whether it shows up in a traditional ETF or not. You know, I think the success we've seen of things like BITW and GBTC, which are not ETFs, they are pink sheet-traded companies that happen to own cryptocurrencies under the hood, I think that that is really going to force the SEC's hand. When we have companies like Tesla making Bitcoin a major balance sheet asset, and we have companies for whom that is their whole balance sheet asset trading on the pink sheets, I think it's going to get hard for them to say no for very much longer. You really think so? I mean, do you, I keep going back to the reasons they said no in the past. There was custody problems. They, they weren't sure of the, of, of the security of custody. And the fact that the prices were still largely set overseas by markets they couldn't control. I, 
you know, I think I'm trying to think like a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, but how do you cure those defects? It seems like a tough one. I know the you know, SEC. I was I, I was pretty close to the SEC, the last administration. They were terrified that five or six years from now, they were going to get hauled in front of Congress and said, are you the guys who uh, uh, who approved ban Granny buying the Bitcoin ETF, which was at $4,000 and is now at uh, $400? I know they were really I, worried about the, the incredible volatility of that. I think no, they were think at a bit of a turning point there because I think the SEC has to do something. And one thing they can do is approve these products and put them in a structure that we all understand. The other thing they could do, which I don't think anybody wants, nor do I think is predicting, is they could come down very hard against crypto and about this whole space, you know, and start banning some of the access vehicles that we do have. I don't think that that's going to happen, but I don't think they can stand here on the head of the pin forever. Uh, and so I think we're going to see some structures that allow Bitcoin to show up or any crypto to show up in a regulated product, we may not may not like some of the conditions, but I do think it's going to happen. Jeff, last word on this one before I move on. No, I think you see more of a sensationalized. You're not giving enough credit to what happens here at the CME Group, Bob. The CME Group launching another cryptocurrency future. I think that is a huge win for a Bitcoin ETF being approved in 2021. Yeah. Yeah, for my two cents on this, I'm waiting for a tethered coin. Uh, I, I'm a, I think blockchain is the revolutionary technology here. Uh, I would love to see a tethered coin, a U.S. dollar tethered coin, a, a, a euro tethered coin. Uh, that will revolutionize trading. I'll be able to send money to my friends in London. I'll be able to move things around really quickly. And I think that will take away some of the uh, uh, intense interest uh, in Bitcoin uh, as, a, as a source of payment. Uh, that's my you two cents. You can send cents. money to your uh, friend in Chicago, go, Bob, just want... anytime you want. Yeah. <laughs> it, isn't it outrageous to you that it still takes three days to send, you know, $100 to London? And, and you know, J.P. Morgan Remarkable. still controls all that? And six banks essentially control all that? It makes me furious. That's why blockchain will solve all that. Blockchain will solve the real <laughs> estate problem. Blockchain could even help solve the clearing problem that we had. Yeah. We all know that. That's why it's blockchain you want to promote, folks, not Bitcoin. Sorry. Editorial. Stop, Bob. Okay. Uh, before we go, can I just point out to our friends over at the NASDAQ, today is the 50th anniversary of the NASDAQ. It started 50 years ago, February 8th, 1971. NASDAQ began operations for the very first time. Uh, and it was originally, uh, Dave, you'll remember this because you were four uh, at the time, or, or three, uh, that it was originally a quotation system. Uh, it, you couldn't trade on NASDAQ. All it was for, right? was a screen that's right. Quotation. That's right. Um, it, it, it is originally it was just a screen you could stare at. But that was revolutionary. You couldn't trade. You could just stare at it. But it was revolutionary because these stocks were traded over the counter and, of course, by the phone. And you could drive a truck through the bid and ask. And one of the things that this did was it helped to lower the bid ask spread because everyone could see the prices on the screen. Now, it wasn't until 1998, actually, uh, that it became the first stock market to actually trade online. We were able to do that and actually do the trading. But uh, it, was, uh, it was quite a revolution uh, for the, uh, the over-the-counter guys to get together and put together NASDAQ 50 years ago. And, of course, you can buy it now through ETFs. Uh, Fidelity has a composite uh, NASDAQ composite index tracking. Uh, O-N-E-Q is the symbol. And, of course, you know about the QQQs and the QQQ juniors that were launched just last year. And, uh, you know, the... They're, Dave, they're still out there, still trying to innovate and do all sorts of new things here. But uh, this goes to show you, 50 years ago, this was considered a crazy idea. Like, who wants to look at stock prices on, on a computer? You call your broker if you want to make a trade. 
And, and now they're pushing the front so end of innovation. The, the, yeah, it's crazy. Well, that's the point here, which is why I think your point about maturity, even though I have problems with Bitcoin, uh, is, is correct. You've got to be you've got to be able to keep pushing financial innovation forward. And and just remember, in 1971, it was revolutionary to stare at a stock price on a computer screen. You didn't even trade it. It was just revolutionary to look at it. And now look where we are. So remember that, folks. That's the that's the key point. That does it. <laughs> Enough pontificating for this week's ETF Edge. Thanks to Dave, Will, and Jeff. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some thoughtful analysis and some perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the conversation with Dave Nodick from ETF Trends. And, and Dave, I know you've been writing about a lot about the social media impacts of this whole Reddit thing. And even though Reddit, uh, even though the whole situation uh, around the most shorted stocks around AMC uh, and around some of the other ones like Bed Bath and Beyond is all kind of dying down a little bit, um, the impact is still there and is likely to be a little longer lasting. Tell us what your thoughts are briefly on what the longer term impacts are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mistake to get hung up in the specifics of GameStop or AMC or, you know, BlackBerry or any of the individual plays here. I think the important thing is to recognize that the very technologies that we've been talking about for the last year around the election, whether it's Facebook or TikTok or Twitter, uh, and how they serve as amplifiers to given messages, the same thing is happening in finance. And it has been happening in finance. I don't think we paid as much attention to it, frankly, because of the noise around the election cycle and obviously the midst of a global pandemic and a global recession. We've had plenty going on. But if you look back over the last year, even at things like the gamma squeeze we saw in Tesla last year before its introduction to the S&P 500, it's hard not to look at that and say that there's been an influence of this. I'm reluctant to call it retail, but let's just call it social media influenced investors. I, I don't want to call it retail because if you actually have spent any time in this space, you realize there are some quite large players in it. Uh, and honestly, even folks like Elon Musk are part of the, I, I won't say the problem, but they are part of this, right? Elon Musk and Dave Portnoy and Mark Cuban, they are both fanning the flames and also cheerleading what they see as a bit of a revolution right. amongst uh, you know, self-directed investors, whether we truly call them retail or not. How do you feel about Chamath and Mark Cuban being cheerleaders? These were very respected guys, and suddenly they're acting, you know, they're acting like cheerleaders. I don't, th there's a part of me that says, well, I understand they're getting in the zeitgeist. Another part is kind of disappointed. Isn't that, do you want to be in that situation? And number number two, isn't that a little dangerous? I mean, th that that meme uh, or that community can easily turn on you. I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about that kind of, Let's call you it know, cheerleading. It's what it is. So look, on the one hand, yes. Is it is it somehow irresponsible or a little inappropriate to have Elon Musk talking about Dogecoin and things like that? And then, you know, a raft of fairly uninformed investors chase them into an asset that I think even he would admit is a joke and not particularly real. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that that is it is probably not great. But and I think this is a reasonable thing to say. 
you know, folks like Warren Buffett have been pretty big cheerleaders for their portfolio stocks, too. I mean, how many times have we heard Warren Buffett talk about the importance of the insurance industry or about why Kraft Heinz was going to be the next big thing, right? Now, they may not do this on Twitter. They may not do it in the middle of a trading day. They may do it in, in letters that get sent out to shareholders. But it's fundamentally the same thing. The only thing we've done is compress the timeline of that. So, you know, I'm not trying to say that all of these guys are Warren Buffett's in disguise, but the idea of talking your book and doing it in an aggressive way is hardly new to the market. Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, it, it is, but you mentioned the timeline compression. That seems to be very important. Is there any difference between the fact that you can move the market that way? I mean, it seems like, yes, we always waited for Warren Buffett's letter to come out and people did buy around this stuff. That's for sure. But there's certain, there certainly seems to be something a little different than the way this trading is being conducted. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's time. It may be right? hyper-compressed, so, but... Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we forget that when we talk about volatility, volatility is actually the measurement of two things, right? It is the measurement of a movement over a time period, right? So if the S&P goes up 1,000 points over the next two years, we wouldn't even notice. If it goes up 1,000 points today, we'd say, holy cats, the market's incredibly volatile. So time is the other half of a volatility equation. And everything we've done in terms of market structure, and in terms of society and how we process information has been about compressing time as much as humanly possible, right? We talk about microsecond trading now. Uh, you know, we talk about a time to market for a new ETF measured in weeks, not months. This is new, and that acceleration means that our ability to process information has to keep up, and frankly, it can't. And that's why we end up with things like memes driving investment theses, because it's one of the only ways to communicate fast enough. Yeah. Let me just move on and ask you about Robinhood. One of the remarkable mm -hmm. things about this whole Robinhood episode is essentially it's a it was a clearing problem that they had. Yes. They, they self-cleared. Um, the amount of trades were potentially so big, and perhaps so many of them may not have uh, they may not have been able to make good on the trades that they had to put up an awful lot of money. This goes back to this what we call the T plus two issue. We used to have T plus three, take the three days. Now it's two days. Why the hell does it take so long to clear? Is there any? <laughs> would this have been less of a problem if it would have been T plus one, or we could have put clearing on a blockchain and done it in the subsecond interval? Would, would, if we would have clear dealt with that T plus two issue, would that have would that have uh, uh, would that have reduced the probability of Robinhood having the kind of problem it had? Sure, we could change the entire clearing infrastructure to be effectively real time settlement or or something very close. In order to do that, you have to effectively prefund all notional transactions in the country. And I think that's the piece that people miss here, right? The reason that Robinhood got caught out is because Dodd-Frank put in place a collateral requirement in the settlement process, which basically insulates the DTCC from the potential catastrophic impact of big market moves while trades are unsettled. So yeah, we can squish that window narrower and narrower, but what it means is trades have to be better and better funded from the beginning. So Robinhood wouldn't be able to provide the kind of margin call leverage that they have been putting or the margin leverage that they have been putting into the system because they simply would not have had that capital. So if if we did in fact crush settlement windows down to something close to real time, we'd have to actually rebuild how markets work because markets currently rely on this idea 
of an overnight matching of ledgers with an opportunity to correct deficiencies. And if we remove that entirely, it means every trade is completely funded and deliverable at the time it's made, which means right. all of that leverage has to come completely out of the system. Well, well how about, could we, could we go to a T plus one? We were T plus three, we went to T plus two a little while ago. Could we go to T plus one? Would that, would overnight be sufficient? And it seemed to me like, you know, cutting the, the amount of time in half would significantly reduce the settlement risk. Well, it, remo it removes the settlement risk, but then you know, part of the part of the beauty of modern markets is that we have this central counterparty for most of where the real money is traded. Right? We have the OCC to be the central counterparty for clearing options trades. We have DTCC and the NS and National Security Clearing Corporation to handle that process, and that's important because it means that when I buy stock, I don't have to worry about who I bought it from because I know that the system itself is acting as the counterparty. To remove that from the equation is problematic. And yes, blockchain technology is one of the solutions there, right? You remove a clearing party because we can verify each other's half of the transaction using the system. I'm not suggesting we can't do that. I'm suggesting we have to completely destroy and replace the plumbing of how markets work. So just going from T2 to T1 would probably necessitate a lot of those changes because this isn't about the ability of bits to move through a, a fiber optic pipe fast enough. That's not what we're solving for. We're solving for risk management. The reason T2 is safer than T1 is because it gives you an extra day to deal with a broken trade, to deal with a crazy volatile market at the close. I mean, imagine, if you will, a world where we had something like a flash crash, but we had zero time to fix anything because settlement happened at 4 p.m. Uh, I'm not sure anybody really wants that when you start working through it. There's trillions of dollars at stake here. Some level of prudence, I think, is, is appropriate. You know what I like about all this? It's a great teaching moment because you get to teach people about the plumbing of the system, which never gets on the air. Nobody ever wants to hear me talk about. Settlement. Oh, yeah. It's like the three days uh, out of my I career. Think, my relevant. I'm relevant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I love clearing. I mean, if there was ever one business I would ever want to own, it's a clearing business because I it, clearing is terrific. No matter. I don't care what you do, but you pay me every time you do something. Every time you want to trade a stock, I get something for that. Yeah, it's a great be, being a middleman and providing well, liquidity turns out to be a great business. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right. Dave Nautic, uh, always a pleasure getting your thoughts and uh, appreciate your uh, your help and your friendship as, as always. Uh, Dave Nautic from ETF Trends, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Have a healthy, happy, and safe trading week. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Here's to greater possibilities together. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.